In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organically. We're back. Meditations and Molotovs on the Progressive Radio Network. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You can find us here every Monday, of course, at 1 o'clock Central Time. That's 11 a.m. on the West Coast. You were just listening to Three Teeth, an industrial metal band out of L.A. that I absolutely love. They've got a new song out, Atrophy. I believe it's on iTunes. Check it out. And we're live. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I didn't pay attention to much of the news headlines this weekend. I had friends, well, two of my friends actually started a new band, The River Wynn. So check out their work. I don't know if they've recorded anything yet. But they were playing a live show Friday, so I checked that out, saw a bunch of people I hadn't seen in a long time, had some good conversations with folks, didn't pick up my phone probably for about six hours, and then I went to sleep, and then I picked it up in the morning, and I didn't really check it out too much in the morning, because I was a little tired. And feeling it from the uh, the night before. So I had no interest, of course, in jumping on social media or reading any kind of news headlines. And then Saturday evening, two of my favorite fighters in the UFC fought. Damian Maya and Carlos Condit. And it was an amazing match. This is something I very rarely talk about on this program for obvious reasons, but and I've been you know I've been hearing on that topic I've actually been hearing from other folks what I might start doing for those who have been asking is maybe I'll do a podcast that will be just politics, social issues and so on. Obviously that would continue here on the Progressive Radio Network as Meditations and Molotovs, and then maybe have another podcast. And you know, I had a friend, a good friend of mine from Australia, who has been offering his services, his technical expertise, in helping me stream this podcast the Meditations in Molotovs podcast here on the Progressive Radio Network in also a video form. So that could be interesting. I actually like that idea. I've been wanting to do more things with video, but I am, for all intents and purposes, a Luddite. So 
I don't pay it. I, I would have a hard time, and I don't have cable TV, but I would have a hard time buying a new TV and then hooking up that TV to whatever wires would exist to make that TV work. Shit, I had a friend help me connect my Roku player. Actually, a friend who was visiting and was who first informed me that Roku existed, didn't even know what a Roku player was, was trying to watch Netflix on my computer all the time. And my friend told me. So anyway, that'll give you an idea of just how much I don't know anything about technology, how it works, what's going on, etc. So I need other people's help. So if, if you would like to help with that end of either extending this podcast to another podcast, which I think would be great, could be open-ended, doesn't have to be a specific time or a length, you know, we could just go for as long as I want to go and have guests on and talk about any number of issues we feel like talking about. I think something like that could be very interesting. And I know the characters to do it in the way that I would want to do it. See, this program has been difficult to navigate in terms of scheduling because, number one, I do the show live, and number two, I only have an hour. So that's, you know, you really want to either cram a lot in or, as I've become accustomed to doing, just sort of have this stream of consciousness conversation with the audience as the hour progresses and we'll talk about any number of issues. So anyway, the point of all this was that by Sunday, yesterday, I had no idea that there was any kind of, uh, you know, I wasn't watching football. And so I guess, did this happen Sunday? I don't know if this, did this happen on Friday? Okay, so it did happen Friday. It was a preseason game on Friday. I'm looking at an article from The Intercept I'm going to read to you because it's quite short and it's a good article here by John Schwartz. So this did, okay, so, because my friend told me today that this had been going on all weekend, which is crazy. I mean, last week, and it's interesting that this happened on Friday or since last, the last program here, because last week's show was primarily a conversation about nationalism, if I remember correctly. And sure enough, on one of the biggest stages, at least biggest sports stages, essentially what that means on TV is the biggest stage. The quarterback, or the backup quarterback now, former quarterback, and quite famous from what my friend has told me. I rely on a few people in my life for mainstream sporting news. Admittedly, the only sport sports that I really follow or the only league I guess you could say that I really follow is the UFC other than that a little bit of boxing a little bit of NFL a little bit of baseball a little bit of basketball no idea what's going on in soccer hockey the tennis world the golf world and so on so that's sort of the extent of my knowledge for the major sports it's very topical 
I can talk your ear off about the 1990s in sports when I was a, a kid and religiously watching and following my favorite athletes and teams and memorizing statistics of all sorts. But anyway, I rely on a few people for information about sports. And so it turns out that this Colin Kaepernick, I want to say he, I think today he played in the Super Bowl for the 49ers. Nonetheless, people from the West Coast will know and football fans around the country. And there are, of course, many millions will know. And this is why this makes this even more interesting because football has become America's game. As much as baseball fans want to project the idea that you know baseball is America's pastime, that it holds a special place in the hearts of Americans, maybe for some people, I would argue not that much for younger people. And surely if we look at viewing statistics, if we look at the amount of money that's being produced in a short span of time here for the NFL, really, just one season short, 16 games, the NFL is America's sport. I mean, think about it. Think about the, well, Simply think about the foot, uh, the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl, I, I want to say, and I think this is correct. Somebody send me a message and correct me if I'm wrong. Is the most watched event in the United States year after year after year. This isn't the most watched sporting event in the United States. It is quite literally the most watched televised event in the United States year after year after year. And I want to also say that year after year after year, there are more people watching the Super Bowl than ever before. So this happens uh, year after year. This is America's biggest sport. You can see now people are gearing up for it. It's the end of summer. If there's one thing the average American is, well, if there's one thing Americans, doesn't matter if you're an average American, poor American, rich American, or otherwise, the one thing most Americans are excited about after the summer is football season. Autumn means football. So for the former starting quarterback, and in some ways a superstar, and now backup quarterback, I guess he's had a rough time, Colin Kaepernick refuses to stand for the national anthem well, those of you who know my politics, those of you who know my worldview, and those of you with any sense should know that not only would I be applauding them, Colin Kaepernick, for his refusal to stand during the national anthem, but that you should be applauding him as well to take what I would consider to be a most courageous stance. When you question American exceptionalism, when you question 
American or challenge American nationalism, even if that be in a symbolic manner, most Americans are going to freak out. Most of the establishment is going to freak out, as it has. And that's both the sports establishment, the political establishment, the economic and media establishment. It is one of the sacred cows in American political discourse. Hell, in our cultural discourse. And we are having long and complex conversations about gender identity, for instance, with Americans more than willing to discuss at length individuals like Caitlyn Jenner. Somehow, a former Olympic athlete and multimillionaire who's decided to physically transform his body is somehow today in 2016 in the United States more controversial than Colin Kaepernick sitting during the national anthem an absurd celebration of slavery, as John Schwartz mentions in his article in The Intercept, and we'll get to that, is somehow more controversial than the absurd violence and levels of violence that we see on TV shows, people being murdered and tortured routinely, night after night, day after day, hour after hour, on mainstream TV channels, both cable and non-cable channels, for years. Now, am I saying that we should censor this? No. What I'm saying is this is a very symbolic of a distorted and sick society, a society that has a hard time looking at itself in the mirror. Americans are kind of like your abusive father. Always thinks he's right. More than willing to use violence. Raises his voice even when he's wrong. Looks to all the wrong sources for the answers. Never admits he's wrong. And if anyone challenges him, they will be met with violent force. And or a verbal berating. Now what does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like American culture to you? Does that sound like the culture we've created here? Where all these blind zombies... uh, 
have uh, are pledging their allegiance to the flag. Now I just saw a video on NBC. The uh, I believe it's their Facebook page. The video had twenty six thousand likes. Now, for anyone who spends time on social media, and I don't mean all day, I just mean if you spend an hour a day on social media, you have a pretty good idea of what's happening in the social media world. And you have a pretty good idea of what would be a popular website, what's not a popular website. What's a popular post, what's not a popular post, whether that be by an individual or whether that be by a major entity such as NBC News. They posted a video of a bunch of people burning Colin Kaepernick jerseys. Of course, almost everyone in the videos that were sent in were white. Not surprising. I have a feeling, just a hunch, that black people probably don't give a shit as much as white people about someone burning the flag. Or, I'm sorry about someone not standing for, there's a Freudian slip, about someone not standing for the national anthem to call out an unjust society and justice system, policing institutions, the killing of young, unarmed people of color, whether they be a Latino, Latina, African American, Native American, Etc. Something tells me the overwhelming number of people who are going to bitch and complain about Colin Kaepernick, who are going to throw a hissy fit, who are going to take the time to make a YouTube video, something I've never even done before, something I think probably most people don't do. I mean, unless you're an artist, a public intellectual, a rock band, a musician, whatever, and you need to put videos on YouTube to promote your work, to get the word out there, or so on, I'm assuming you don't post YouTube videos or post too many videos to Facebook if it's not, say, someone else's video or if it's not, say, a video of your children doing something cute or whatever. So for people to take the time to make videos about burning Colin Kaepernick jerseys shows me and should show many people out there that there is a significant number of Americans who are useless creatures. And I say that with the utmost sincerity. I don't say that trying to get a rise out of people. I don't say that because I'm angry or cynical, particularly today. Hell, I've spent an hour and a half earlier running up sand hills and doing sprints, basically until I was ready to pass out. So if there was ever a time that I was more calm and collected, it would be right now. And I'm telling you, 
that these people, the kind of people who would like that video, the kind of people who would post such a video, the kind of people who are in the least bit upset, if you feel anything, any emotion in your heart or in your mind about Colin Kaepernick not standing for the national anthem, you, my friend or friends, are the problem. I suggest taking a deep and hard look at yourselves in the mirror. I actually don't know if there's any reason to even engage with people who would have a problem with someone standing or not standing for the national anthem. What does the national anthem actually mean? Well, here's where we get to Jonathan or John Schwartz's article. And I didn't want to rant and rave today. I felt that way when I woke up. And I felt that way throughout last evening when I actually found out about this story. I, I wasn't the least bit surprised. Let's be clear. No one should be surprised at the way Americans are reacting to this. And some Americans from some places. Again, I would argue there's probably a massive disconnect between, or, or th there's, let me put this a different way, there is disproportionately more white Americans who are in a tussle over this little video of Colin Kaepernick sitting on the sidelines during the national anthem than black people in the United States are upset. Now, some of Colin Kaepernick's colleagues in the NFL, many of whom are black, have expressed some support. Former players, I think we'll get to that eventually in an article that's coming up, but many people have expressed support. And of course, those who have been the most vocally opposed to Kaepernick's actions have been white players and white media figures. This is why it's so upsetting to me when I see hyper-nationalistic black people or Native Americans or Hispanic Latino people. Because that flag, to me, and I think objectively, represents the worst of the worst with our society. Colonialism, slavery, genocide, ecological devastation, empire, violence, inequality. That's what this nation is. It is the most violent, the most unequal, and one of the most racist societies in the world. That's what we are. And that's what we'll always be in the United States until something fundamentally changes the trajectory of this country and this empire. Until the empire is dismantled, this trajectory will continue. 
some would argue that this trajectory is going to continue regardless of what people do because all empires eventually come to an end. Even more so, all civilizations eventually come to an end. But we're getting a little off topic if we're going to delve into a conversation about the end of civilization and the end of the American empire. But that flag represents nothing to me. I've never flown a flag. And as most people know, as a veteran as a, and as a veteran who has spoken out about the wars since returning home from the war in Iraq, I absolutely loathe the flag in many ways. That flag, again, to me, represents the very worst of the human species. A devotion to absurdity, a devotion to arbitrary lines drawn in the sand by people much more powerful than you and I. And yet we take it seriously. Still, today, in 2016, tens of thousands of people found the, the energy to get on Facebook and like videos about people who are burning Colin Kaepernick jerseys. And I'm sorry, folks, this will be a topic that we constantly return to because American nationalism is one of the, in my opinions, sort of top three, top five fundamental problems we will have to deal with in this society if we want anything positive to come out of this country. If we want universal health care or even a new health care system, say something different than universal health care, say a health care system that is neither run by corporate entities nor is it run by a centralized state apparatus, the goal, of course, being to make sure everyone, anyone, anywhere, at any time, for any reason, could see a doctor for free. We can't have that with American nationalism. Why? Well, because the way that we understand America, the way most Americans are taught American nationalism, the way most Americans are brainwashed into believing that this country is an exceptional country or that we enjoy a special place in the world. And that indoctrination incor incorporates a lot of capitalist ideology. The two go hand in hand here in the United States. The idea, of course, being that if you work hard, it's the Horatio Alger myth, if you work hard, if you see yourself in competition with your neighbors, family members, friends, fellow students, 
and you, by any means necessary, try and defeat them, position in life for yourself, that in this culture is celebrated. I would argue that's a sickness. I would also argue that that stops us from doing anything special. And that sort of hyper-materialism, hyper-commercialism, that the way of economistically looking at the world... This is a typical American thing. I would just look at it in the articles that are in the media, look at it on social media, look at it in American culture, movies, radio, TV, magazines. The economy, capitalism here, serves a central function in American society and in the ways in which Americans understand not only themselves, but each other and the outside world. That Horatio Alger myth, that hyper-individualism, that idea that to be an American is to accumulate as much wealth as possible for your family and friends and to fuck everyone else, who cares? That idea is inherently tied into the notion that Americans are exceptional and that because we're exceptional, that's the way we've set up our culture and society and economy and so on. Of course, anyone living in reality knows that this is absurd. Anyone thinking with a critical mind understands that this is a farcical way of looking at American society and culture and understanding what exactly it is and what exactly it isn't. What it isn't is a land of free, brave people who have outcompeted their their peers and just so happened to create such an amazing society. Of course, the period that's looked at the most, the post-World War II period, at least up till 1970, 1971, when we would you know, then say the neo- neoliberal period began, the what is referred to as the golden age of capitalism. Was taught to people throughout school, doesn't matter what level you're at, elementary, high school, college, that we were exceptional. It was the greatest generation that they came home from the war and they built this amazing economy and we were so much better and so much better prepared and better educated, had more freedoms than everyone else, when in all reality the rest of the world was simply rebuilding from World War II. Once they rebuilt, or at least began to uh, be able to compete with the American economy in the 1970s, major changes started taking place in the American economy. Now, not all of these changes were automatic just because we had economic competitors, but this dominance of world affairs, the dominance and the disproportionate chunk 
of the world's GDP that the Americans held for so many decades, the disproportionate economic power that the United States had for so many decades, led to that so-called golden era of capitalism here in the United States. And so in the 70s, of course, in the 80s, people, the, the, the capitalists and the, those in charge started giving everyone credit cards. Of course, real wages stagnated or went down, so people didn't have the money to actually participate in a consumer economy. So those who were in charge knew, well, if we're not going to give them higher wages, if we're going to continue to bust down unions, if we're going to continue to make American workers live more and more precariously as the decades go on, well, they're going to have to buy our shitty goods somehow. How do we do that? Well, we'll give them credit cards. And the same happened with the housing market. The same is now happening with student loans and car payments. All of that being said, because I'm looking at this article thinking, okay, Colin Kaepernick, how did we get to credit cards? That, this, what this, I guess what I'm saying is the myths upon which American, ideas like American exceptionalism were built have to be deconstructed and dismantled. So there's nothing special about the original colonies. There's nothing special about what preceded that and what followed that period of time. There's nothing special about driving hundreds of thousands, millions of indigenous people from their homes, slaughtering them, imprisoning them, enslaving them, destroying their culture, replacing their culture with white Anglo-Saxon Western cultures and ideas, forcing them to assimilate to the colonizer's lifestyle and culture politics, and so on. That's a disgraceful period. It, it should always be remembered as such. Any whitewashing of that period is a true disgrace. And, and, and any whitewashing of America's experience with African Americans and black Americans And let me make a distinction there, too. I've had this conversation with some of my black friends in the past who are political activists. The reason why I have to say both black and African Americans is because not every black American is an African American. And I think people need to understand this. You know, I mean, Chicago is a great example. I mean, the city I live in is a great example. I mean, there's plenty of uh, black Americans who live in this city, one-third of the city, in fact, almost one-third of the city. Some of the black Americans who live in this city are Jamaican, some are Haitian, so forth, Dominican. That's something to keep in mind. In any case, that history, the history of slavery, is something we can never forget. People say, oh, it was so long ago. Well, I'll tell you what. A few generations isn't that long, and stories pass. 
And so it's not just on the one hand we're talking about attitudes. On the other hand, we're talking about material realities, systemic inequalities, systemic oppressions, and repression. Those are institutions. Those are material realities that people are dealing with. Here, I'm talking about attitudes, ideologies, symbols, and the way we relate to them. And again, this is why I would argue there's not nearly as many black Americans who are going to lose their mind over Colin Kaepernick, who's essentially, of course, trying to stand up for black rights, for black people who are being murdered by the police in cold blood. And have been, of course, for decades. You know, I had to explain this, not explain it, but just remind one of my white friends, you know, who said, well, these police these days are just out of control. And I had to back up and say, wait a minute, it's not that the police today are out of control. The police have always been out of control. It's just now everyone is walking around with a video camera in their pocket. And so these assholes are getting caught more. That's all. It has always been this way. If you talk to older black people, they will tell you their experiences with the police. If you talk to them, they will tell you what their parents told them about their experiences with the police. And let's be very clear. It was actually much worse many decades ago. And that's not because the police have taken upon themselves to act nicer, that the government has been forcing police out of their own goodwill to behave, that's because activists around this country have forced institutions like police departments to take more sane views, to have more sane and humane policies. But that history, the history of slavery, that's part of the flag. That's the biggest part of the flag. Slaughter of Native Americans. That's the biggest. That's what that flag represents. The imperial adventures in, in what the American elites called Uncle Sam's backyard, namely Latin America, and Latin America in the imper- American imperialism in Latin America. That's something to be proud of throughout the 1800s. Or some of the myths people tell themselves about the 1800s. And speaking of which, was it? Were, would, should we have been proud that America took some estimates 45 to 55 percent of Mexico's land when we fought the Mexican-American War in 1848? Is that something to be proud of? Because that's what this flag represents. Land theft, colonialism, genocide, murder, slavery. And then there's two main myths that I think people have to break. I think these myths are very important because stories are very important. Stories are very important because stories allow us to explore our history. Stories allow us to tell our history, to tell our stories in various ways. And people remember stories. Stories are interesting. Stories should be entertaining. Whether they be personal stories or historical stories. So when we tell ourselves these tales, and the first big one that I would 
I would direct you to look at a speech by Howard Zinn. I think it's called the the Holy Grail, or well, not the Holy Grail. It's like the Holy Trinity of Wars. I'll have to look it up. You go to my Facebook page, and I'll post it on the thread for this today's show. And a shout out to everyone who shares the my info. I appreciate it. There's tons of people who put stuff out there, and I appreciate that. But Howard Zinn gave a speech about a holy trinity of wars, the first being the Revolutionary War. It wasn't fought for freedom. The second being the Civil War. It wasn't fought to free slaves, regardless of what you were told. So pull that bullshit straight out of your head. And, of course, the third BS story is World War II, that the United States entered World War II to do what? To defeat the Nazis and simultaneously save the Jews. That's the, that those are the three biggest myths in American society. Everything since then has been very hard. to uh, rebrand. They've tried to do it with Vietnam, but people know Vietnam was a disaster. They know it was the one of the, if not the greatest war crime in the second half of the 20th century. Some would argue it's the absolute greatest war crime. As the historian Nick Terse points out, over 4 million Vietnamese killed as a result of the war in Vietnam what's referred to as the American War, if you go to Vietnam or speak with the Vietnamese who live there. Ever since then, I think people have basically woken up, or it's, how would you say, people haven't woken up. Some people have, and we learned a lot. We know a lot more today about what the U.S. Empire does, what the U.S. military does abroad than we did before. I don't think it's any different than, say, what I mentioned with the police. The difference today is that people have more knowledge to access, more information to access, to help them better understand what the U.S. military does, what it doesn't, what the CIA has been involved with, what the State Department is involved with, and so on. So in that way, it's not that much different than the police. It's very similar. In other words, the military was also much more ruthless in Vietnam than it was in, say, Afghanistan or Iraq. Does that mean that the consequences will be any less in the long term? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I would argue opposite. I would argue that the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq will have far greater and worse consequences than the invasion and occupation of Vietnam. That, that much, I think, is not... It's uncontroversial to say that, and, and I think we have to recognize those differences. So as much as those wars are very similar, as much as they share many of the same traits, we have to be very clear and also talk about the differences. And the primary difference in my thinking are the consequences of those wars. And they will be greater, and they have been greater, even in these last 15 years, than the consequences of invading and occupying, occupying Vietnam. 
and Laos and Cambodia. So, to summarize this little part of what I'm trying to say here about this conversation of nationalism and American history and how we understand ourselves in this country, there are three things that we have to, three wars, as Howard Zinn states, that we have to deconstruct the mythology behind. The first being the Revolutionary War, which wasn't to fight away the king and the queen and to stand up for true freedom and all this other nonsense that Americans tell themselves. It was about dodging taxes, exploiting Native Americans, expanding and understanding that this was, our, this, this was the potential to be the next empire. And of course, that's how it played out. So at its very core, at the birth of this nation, modern nation state that we understand, was about exploitation and genocide, expanding commercial opportunities, exploiting the natural environment, and so on. Again, I don't think that's very controversial. I mean, moving down the list, as I said earlier, the Civil War, again, wasn't about freeing slaves and so on. Primarily about maintaining the kind of industry that the North was developing at the time, industrialization, transitioning into a more industrial economy as opposed to an agricultural economy. Who had the power after that? Of course, northern bankers, northern manufacturing giants, northern corporations, public elites, and so forth. And then, of course, World War II, and we've talked about that in the past. We'll talk about that in the future. All that being said, where along the history, particularly as Colin Kaepernick is mentioning black Americans, where in the history of black America should be, should be celebrated? Because what? Are we talking about the Reconstruction period? Are we talking about Jim Crow? Are we talking about segregation? Are we talking about the prison industrial complex? The various forms of systemic racism that exist today? You go to disproportionately and primarily black cities. Places like Gary, Indiana, Detroit, Michigan, north side of Milwaukee, parts of Baltimore, Cincinnati, Ferguson, southwest side of Chicago. That's what freedom looks like. That's what liberty looks like. That's the quote-unquote greatest nation in the world. That's what the greatest nation in the world produces. So the point of what I'm saying here is don't allow anyone to talk to you or to mention the wonders of American society without simultaneously mentioning the ills of not only modern American society, but the horrific and violent history that is America. So as Jonathan Swartz mentions in The Intercept, 
an article titled, Colin Kaepernick is Writer Than You Know, The National Anthem is a Celebration of Slavery. He writes, quote, Before a preseason game on Friday, San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick refused to stand for the playing of the Star-Spangled Banner. When he explained why, he only spoke about the present. Quote, I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppressed bl- black people and people of color. There are bodies in the street and people are getting paid leave and getting away with murder. Unquote. Twitter then went on, went predictably nuts, with at least one 49ers fan burning Kaepernick's jersey. <laughs> There's been many since. Almost no one seems to be aware that even if the U.S. were a perfect country today, it would be bizarre to expect African-American players to stand for the star-spangled batter. Why? Because it literally celebrates the murder of African-Americans. Few people know this because we, are only ever, because we only ever sing the first verse. But read, but read the end of the third verse and you'll see why the star-spangled banner is not just a musical atrocity. It's an intellectual and moral one, too. So the third verse of the Star-Spangled Banner is, No refuge could save the hairling and slave from the terror of flight or the gr- gloom of the grave. And the Star-Spangled Banner in triumph doth wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. The Star-Spangled Banner, Americans hazily remember, was written by Francis Scott Key, about the Battle of Fort McHenry in Baltimore during the War of 1812. But we don't ever talk about how the War of 1812 was a war of aggression that began with an attempt by the U.S. to grab Canada from the British Empire. However, we'd widely overstated the strength of the U.S. military. By the time the Battle of Fort McHenry in 1814, the British had counterattacked and overrun Washington, D.C., setting fire to the White House. And one of the key tactics behind the British military's success was its active recruitment of American slaves. As, detailed, as a detailed 2014 article in Harper's explains, the orders given to the Royal Navy's Admiral Sir George Coburn read, Let the landings you make be, be more for the protection of the desertion of the black population than with a view to any other advantage. The great point to be attained is the cordial support of the black population. With them properly armed and backed with 20,000 British troops, Mr. Madison will be hurled from his throne. Whole families found their way to the ships of the British, who accepted everyone and pledged no one would be given back to their owners. Adult men were trained to create a regiment called the Colonial Marines who participated in many of the most important battles, including the August 1814 raid on Washington. Then on the night of September 13, 1814, the British bombarded Fort McHenry. Key, seeing the fort's flag the next morning, was inspired to write the lyrics for the Star-Spangled Banner. So when Key penned No Refuge Could Save the Harrowing Slave from the Terror of Flight or the Gloom of the Grave, He was taking great satisfaction in the deaths of slaves who'd freed themselves. His perspective may have been affected by the fact that he owned several slaves himself. With that in mind, think again about the next two lines. And the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave, or the land of the free, the home of the brave. The reality is that there were human beings fighting for freedom with incredible bravery during the War of 1812. 
However, the Star-Spangled Banner glorifies America's triumph over them and then turns that reality completely upside down, transforming their killers into the courageous freedom fighters. After the U.S. and the British signed a peace treaty at the end of 1814, the U.S. government demanded the return of American property, which by that point numbered about 6,000 people. The British refused. Most of the 6,000 eventually settled in Canada, with some going to Trinidad, where their descendants are still known as the Americans, spelled with an M. Furthermore, if those leading the backlash against Kaepernick need more inspiration, they can get it from Francis Scott Key's life later. The man who wrote the Star-Spangled Banner was a district attorney for Washington, D.C., as described in a book called Snowstorm in August by former Washington Post reporter Jefferson Morley, the police were notorious thieves, frequently stealing blacks' possessions with impunity. One night, one of the constables tried to attack a woman who escaped and ran until she fell off a bridge across the Potomac and drowned. There is neither mercy for just nor justice for colored people in this district, an abolitionist paper wrote. No fuss or stir was made about it. She was got out of the river and was buried, and there the matter ended. He was furious and in indicted the newspaper for intending to injure, oppress, aggrieve, and vilify the good name, fame, credit, and reputation of the magistrates and constables of Washington County. You can decide for yourself whether there's some connection with what happened 200 years ago and what Colin Kaepernick is angry about today. Maybe it's all ancient, meaningless history. Or maybe it's not, and Kaepernick is right. And, and we really need a new national anthem. The next article I would suggest to check out, because we're not going to have time here today, is if you burned your Kaepernick jersey, you should burn your Ali poster as well. How Easily We Forget by Peter Wade. Of course, that article talking about the glaring hypocrisy of people who celebrate... Muhammad Ali's life, or the ignorance, I guess we should say, and celebrate Muhammad Ali's life, someone who stood up, who refused to be drafted in the war in Vietnam, who said many more and much more controversial things about American society than Colin Kaepernick did, but who today is celebrated by fighting fans and by sports fans around the United States. The question I have, or the point I would like to make, is when will we have an athlete who is brave enough, if you want to say it that way, because I don't actually think it's too brave if you're already a multimillionaire to speak out. Sure, you're taking a risk. Your, your reputation is taking a risk. Your circle of friends can change quickly. Your Public image can change quickly. All of these things are in question. All of these things could be challenged, undoubtedly. And they will be and they have been with regard to Kaepernick. However, the question I have is when will an American athlete, professional athlete or athletes, perform a similar protest for the millions of of black and brown people we are killing around the globe and especially since 9-11. So in this context of the war on terror, the occupation, 
and invasion of Afghanistan, leading to the deaths of tens of thousands, some argue well over 100,000, some argue hundreds of thousands. Of course, we'd never have a good count. And I would argue that it makes more sense to overestimate the amount of deaths because that's what always ends up happening in the end, as Nick Terse mentions with regard to Vietnam. When will we have an athlete that will stand up for Iraqi lives or Afghan lives or Somali lives or Syrian lives or Palestinian lives or Libyan lives or maybe Egyptian lives or Iranian lives? And we could go on down the list. That, my friends, is the next frontier. That's the next step for progressive politics, for left radical politics. The police, one of the most respected institutions in the United States, are finally being critiqued, and properly so. That institution deserves as much critique as humanly possible because that institution is given a disproportionate amount of power in the society and hence a disproportionate amount of respect in the society. However, the same is true with the U.S. military, and that ties into American capitalism, because without the U.S. empire, this country could not have developed in the way that it has, nor could have American capitalism or the Wall Street executives and hedge fund managers and the Wall Street power brokers that essentially run society. All of those things are connected, but... The next step is to not just stand up for black lives and to say that black lives matter because they do and because we must say that. But the next step in my thinking is to get someone in American society, this actors, athletes and so on, to stand up for the lives and the people who are killed overseas by our drone programs, by our CIA and by the U.S. military. Whoever does that deserves as much respect as we can possibly give them. So thanks today for listening to Meditations and Molotovs. Find us here next week on the Progressive Radio Network every Monday. You could find me, your host, Vince Emanuele, at 1 p.m. Central Time. That's 11 o'clock on the East Coast for now. Enjoy the sounds of Three Teeth, and I'll talk to you next week. In what we're doing now, we are getting to a field of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary, we don't know the contrast organic Organic mechanical. Organic mechanical.